You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. The first results from Nuka Penna are in the books, and the new technology is taking to the streets. We take a look at the breakout cards in Modern and Pioneer. Shadow of Mortality, Vivian on the Hunt, and a little bird called Ledger Shredder. That's all coming up on today's episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, joining you from the Twin Cities. And we have the original band back together. I am joined by my guy from the left coast. He is Damon Alexander. Damon, what's going on? Hey, hey, we have a Legacy 1K coming up this weekend. So dusting off the old standstill brew. Nice. That uh, you dominated with in a uh, previously Legacy 1K, I believe. Yeah, yeah. 23-person tournament uh, where I, I made it to win through the quarterfinals and then wind up being the winner hey you can only play who who's in front of you <laughs> yeah uh and we are joined of course by the ceo of the faithless brewing podcast he is cave dan online daniel shriver dan the man what's going on hey david good to be here excited for this reunion tour faithless brewing classic yeah damon uh, went and got a haircut and took a shower he's looking fresh dressed and ready to impress i shower most days actually <laughs> we'll take your word for that <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's Nuka Pena is out. It's on the streets. All kinds of people brewing up sweet decks. And we will be getting to some of the newest technology in this uh, podcast. And then the next podcast that we will release on Monday, we will look at our latest results with Giada's Weaponry. And we will go over our newest brews using the Bant Triome. But before we get into all the latest technology today... We need to do a little housekeeping. So just a reminder, if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us, the best way to do so is to go to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Join at whatever level you feel is comfortable for you, and you will get access to the Discord. You get a bunch of other fun perks like merch. You get to vote for cards. You get to be involved with the new monthly project with Serum Visions. It's just a grand old time out there on the Discord. Yeah, if you listened to our Monday episode, you heard Emmy, Mordekaiser, and myself talking about our first crack at Invoke Calamity, which is the card that was chosen by popular acclaim by patron vote. We're starting to see some interesting deck lists getting thrown around in Discord. I'm really excited to see where this card goes. We're going to check in on it briefly again this week. And as David said, yeah, this is the beginning of an exciting new collaboration, so... At the end of the month, our friends from the Serum Missions podcast, Arun Singh and Brian Madden, will come bring it all together, and we'll vote on the next card. Yeah, and then additionally, we will be generating some YouTube content, Dan. It looks like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, people have been asking for this for a long time. Weren't able to actually get it together until I was able to borrow the young and nimble brain of Emmy to figure out how to actually get this stuff up and running. But... The idea is that, you know, instead of just hearing us talk about the decks, you can actually see for yourself with your own two eyes how these brews play out, you know, some of the concepts that we're ranting and raving about here on the podcast. If you just want to go see for yourself how does this deck actually play out in person, the YouTube is going to have some gameplay for you to check out. I put up a video just the other day that showed uh, actually a recent 5-0 run I had with Celtic Crabvine, which, while not a brew, is a deck that I really enjoy playing. I'm going to be putting up this week as well some leagues that I played just today with Luxior and Sahili Rai and Altar of the Brood. And we're going to talk about those decks, uh, I believe, in Monday's episode. And yeah, you can also find Emmy playing leagues there. We're going to be experimenting with different forms of content, and we're still in the initial phases. So we'd love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you want to see. Tell us what you think. And go check it out. Yeah, I mean, my one pushback there is Crabvine is 100% a brew. Am I crazy here, Damon, that no one plays Crabvine? It's like a list only Dan has succeeded with and the, the other person you brewed it with, Dan. 
Well, I, I think just like beer, once it's opened, it goes flat over time. Oh, you know, okay. like it's not a new brew at this point. I see. I did not consider it a brew when I started playing it. It's an innovative list in the sense that Anthony Menino, who's I play bad decks, had found some good tech for the flex slots. You know, I don't feel like we invented the list. It's like the the error to Hoge. So how can it be a brew? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, technically, I am the heir to Alexander the Great because I have, you know, we all have point zero 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 one percent of the DNA. I think like that's kind of the <laughs> Damon Alexander name checks out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's trace it all the way back to uh, East India there, and we're right, ready to roll. Name name any any uh, English king, queen. <laughs> I'm sure related somehow. Pocahontas. Have you seen some of those stats that like 68% of people in Mongolia have uh, Genghis Khan uh, DNA or something? Because he had so many wives oh and gosh. concubines, hmm. and then his sons also had so many wives and concubines. He was a real hogek. Yeah, it, was, <laughs> it pays to be uh, the king or the shah or whatever he was. I don't, I don't know what the uh, ruling hierarchy in rural Mongolia <laughs> was. Uh, anyway, so Faith is Brewing on YouTube, and we're on other socials now too. You can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Facebook. Wherever you are, we hope to meet you there. Absolutely. So, New Capena is out, and exactly like uh, you talk about in your little notes here, Dan, I mean, it's an exciting time. There's lots of people trying stuff, and it's like, are these cars going to stick around, or are they going to, you know, create, quote unquote, the correct way to build some of these decks that they're updating? Uh, or they can create new decks, you know, out of whole cloth. And obviously modern and pioneer, uh, as the sets, as they include more and more sets, it's harder and harder to break through. But uh, we still saw a bunch of uh, cool new tech in the first week. Yeah, today is Wednesday, so May 4th. That means we've seen one deck dump in modern, one league deck dump, I should say, one league deck dump from pioneer, and then the weekend challenges and some prelims in both formats. So the results are starting to trickle in. You know, I've diligently gathered here every list I could find that had some new card in it. But big picture, it's been a pretty tame debut for Nuka Pena so far. Would you guys agree? This is one of those sets where there's a lot of people that are a little bit afraid of change. They like the world to feel stable and predictable. And magic requires new sets to be printed to, first off, make Watsi money. Secondly, to keep the people that do like change entertained. And so Streets of New Capenna, I think, kind of finds like the right balance where things are changing, but it's not like world breaking. If you had a modern deck before, you know, maybe you'll lose a ledger shredder a few times now, but you're not going to get your whole, you know, deck shredded. I see what you did there. That was well done. <laughs> so we'll start off in modern. Uh, I think big picture, the biggest winner so far is Calibrated Blast question mark specifically because of the card shadow of mortality shadow of mortality is a card that costs 15 it also has some game text you can cast it as a 7-7 actually i'm not even sure that anyone's ever cast this as a 7-7 but just for the sake of completeness if you want to cast it as a 7-7 you have to check your life total and see how much less it is than your starting life total and then you get that much cost reduction so if you are at what seven life you get this for two mana but more realistically, you're just going to flip this to Calibrated Blast. So this deck is 38 to 40 lands, 4 Calibrated Blast, 2 Throws of Chaos, and everything else is just the biggest CMC you could find. 4 Emrakul, 4 Autochthon Worm, 4 Shadow of Mortality, 4 Scion of Draco. You kind of joke about it, but Shadow of Mortality is just an upgrade, right? It's 15 instead of 14. The deck was previously playing cards that didn't cost as much, so that matters. And then it can be cast, especially if you're in a race situation, you draw it instead of your Calibrated Blast, you know, and your opponents hit you with whatever, a 1-1 one, one that's had a hammer strap to it. You do just get to play a creature that, you know, is pretty big um, for very little instead of it just rotting in your hand. I mean, that's something is so much more than nothing. Yeah, and this deck really isn't like a super fast combo deck. Uh, like, I think it's trying to win around turn five. Um, and so that's like the time frame where your opponent will almost certainly get you to pretty low life. The deck also gets to benefit from extra triomes. It wants the land types for Sign of Draco. It also wants to be able to play Black Black for Shadow of Mortality. So you get to play uh, Zeotaurus Proving Ground and Spar's Headquarters and Rafine's Tower. Um, you know, it, it wants those types and, and the actual types that you want to play are actually all 
um, apparently better um, the the new triomes as opposed to the old triomes. Yeah, this deck is also an interesting case study in brewing because we took a shot at calibrated blast. And we were trying things like scheming symmetry. I was playing cards like tireless tracker in that deck, if I remember. Uh, and it just like didn't really work out, and we set it aside. But then this build came out, and this is like the pure degenerate build where you just don't play cheap spells. And like it's it's another like it's a good mode to think of like when you have your attempt to brew with a card, there may be a totally different way to approach it. And in this case, that's what we see here. And this build is certainly much better than the one we had. Yeah, we had Dylan Cruzy, who is Dylan MPG, come on as a guest to talk about this deck. He was one of the leaders in innovating it way back in the day. It's improved. I mean, not just Shadow of Mortality, but with Neon Dynasty, it got a bunch of channel lands. There's a version here from Bob49, the noted Charbulcher player, took it all the way to sixth place in the Sunday Challenge. This is, to my knowledge, the highest finish ever for Calibrated Blast. In the Saturday Challenge, it also finished in 11th place. So I don't know if the deck has just improved that much, or if it's just that people are finally willing to pick it up and realizing that it's always been kind of good, or it's gotten much better now that you have access to Sakenzin or Buseju, who endures. I also think because the list was pretty locked in, it, it was pretty easy, right? You just add the foreshadow mortality. I think even the first day we saw this card spoiled, you call the four cards that were going to cut for it, Dan, uh, you and Ward. So there wasn't anything else to do. Just add add in the new triomes, add in shadow. You've got the quote-unquote best version of this deck already ready to go, whereas other people might be trying other stuff. So you basically are playing the finished version of this deck against people that are playing decks that maybe are you know at 90% of what their finished form might be. All right, so that's Shadow of Mortality. Next biggest winner, question mark, is Obnixilis, the adversary. Winner in the sense that, I mean, this card is so expensive right now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I finally got to rent some today. They they cost me 86 tickets each to rent Obnixilis. Is that the most expensive? Is that more expensive than Ragavan? That's a great question. No. Well, it's more expensive on MTGO. It's cheaper in paper. So people who were able to get their hands on Obnixilis have been experimenting with it. And, you know, we've seen about five different archetypes get published so far in Modern, incorporating Obnixilis in different ways. Now, David, I know this is a card that caught your eye. In fact, you sketched out some initial brews with it in Pioneer. But what are we seeing in Modern for Obnix? Well, you're seeing it added to just sort of decks that aren't trying to do anything particularly unfair. The A Rakdos midrange list, um, you know, we saw this list be very successful in the Luris days. Now that Luris is no more, you get to play some number of uh, elementals, the pitch elementals. This The list I'm looking at is only playing one Fury. Season Pyromancer, obviously a, a, a favorite card. And then some number of Lilianas and, and Omnixilses. But everything else is basically the same, right? Ragavan, uh, Dothy Voidwalker, a couple Kroxa, a couple Turok, because it's so good against all the white removal. Bunch of hand disruption, efficient creature kill, and you need to play some kind of removal for... Uh, the blue delve dragon. I mean, there's just nothing fancy here. It's just, this is almost like the new Jund, right? If you don't want to play Ren and Six, this this is a uh, this is the list. Yeah, it's not obvious to me just looking at it that Obnixilis fits with the strategy. Yeah, I agree. Because the other lists are playing cards like you know, like Blood Gas and Unlucky Witness, and it makes sense that those are a good sack fodder. Here, you have Season Pyromancer that spits out tokens. When you're playing cards like Ragavan, you wind up with like extra Ragavan sometimes, and they they don't always like have a good battlefield to actually get through. Um, but certainly, like a 17 creature deck doesn't pop out of me as like a number one Obnixilis home. Yeah, I mean, I'm somewhat interested in Obnixilis in any deck that has a bunch of removal. So while it's probably worse at casting it, it's probably much better protecting it. Also, any list that can start on Ragavan and turn two, two Obnixiluses in certain matchups, that's just <laughs> against decks that don't have like good creatures to attack with. It's just so hard for like an Elementals list that doesn't draw any of their Furies, right, out of their 80 cards. Like they just can't beat that. They're just going to lose. They, they're they're going to take four damage a turn for the rest of the game. They, they don't have... Uh, ways to affect the board until the game is you know in a much later stage when they play whatever omnath on turn four um so yeah my sense is as well you'd want more creatures to sacrifice you know with only two maybe they just never drew it i mean that's it is just the reality that they could have won a bunch of matches without ever casting on nicholas or maybe this uh person was casting on nicholas every game and their their takeaway was i need to be playing you know three of these and less lilianas for instance the Rakdos midrange list that we're talking about is from the player Young Dingo. They managed to finish in the top 32 on both Saturday and Sunday in the Modern Challenge with the same list. So they might be onto something here. But 
Beeman mentioned this sacrifice list, and there I think you can definitely see Obnix list as a much more synergistic piece. So Damon, why don't you tell us about this Rakdos sacrifice? Yeah, so I'll use the reference list uh, that came in from Saddleback Lagak at 24th place in one of the challenges. And so it has a lot of the same cards as the Rakdos midrange deck, but this deck just features cards like Lightning Skelemental, Bloodgast, Unlucky Witness as the main new additions, plus Goblin Bombardment and Unearth to complement your cheap creatures that you like to either sacrifice or put into the graveyard. And Aspiring Spike has played a lot of lists in this, in this category. Uh, I saw he was streaming with some Obnixilis leagues earlier this week. And so it's pretty powerful. Obnixilis is definitely like a strange card where it has complicated play patterns. Like, for example, when you resolve two Planeswalkers at the same time, the stack or the first one resolves first, but the stack has to clear before you can activate Planeswalker abilities. And so your opponent has windows to interact, actually, where they can bolt the copy before the first one resolves, and now the copy actually never gets to activate. So sometimes this makes the card weaker. Sometimes there's ways to make it, like if you play around it correctly, you can make it stronger. Just like Oko, not like Oko, it's not as good as Oko, that's for sure. But um, just like Oko, there's like these weird mini games you have to learn to play with the way these cards play out. Yeah, the other thing I noticed, because uh, I watched a little bit of Spikes 5.0, people were making really bad decisions on the Omnixilus Plus. You know, when they're at 18 life and they're discarding Omnath or something on turn four, it's just like, what the heck's going on right now? You know, you know, you can just take two life. So I don't know if those are misclicks or people just not understanding what was happening, but. I think the play pattern you want to take is like, especially in a deck like this that isn't that aggressive, I would just take a lot of damage um, from uh, Obnixilis before I start discarding cards, unless your deck is getting something out of the, the discards. The, your life doesn't matter until it's actually under threat, so I think people need to kind of get used to that your life as a resource again. A 3-mana Planeswalker just uptaking for 2 doesn't do that much if your opponent is not attacking with any creatures. Yeah, it's like the bear test where starting on turn two, your opponent resolves one grizzly bear a turn. Like, can your modern deck beat that? Like, it better be able to. <laughs> Impressions so far of Unlucky Witness. This is a single red 1-1 human citizen. When Unlucky Witness dies, exile the top two cards of your library. Until your next end step, you may play one of those cards. David, you highlighted this right away during the preview week. Uh, I was not as sure about it. It's, it's here as a four of in what we're calling Rakdos Sacrifice in Modern. I have not seen this picked up in Pioneer yet. Yeah, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I couldn't rent any Omnixlises, so <laughs> I would have been playing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the difference between Unlucky Witness and like the Artifact Package is you can play Unlucky Witness on turn one, which will freeze you up to whatever, Thoughtseize and Fatal Push and Pioneer on turn two, or you know, cast your blood gas <laughs> on turn two in uh, in modern. Unlucky Witness does not need any other synergy piece. You just can play it on turn one. You can block their Ragavan attack on turn two. It either finds a land if that's what you want or finds, you know, a removal or a, or a piece of hand disruption. The, this deck is super cheap. But again, unlike um, the Synthesizer, this card just always gives you the card that you want. Synthesizer, you have to play way cheaper. You cannot play this many three drops. You have to play all these artifact sacrifices. Unlucky Witness is just going to die, right? It, eventually, they're going to have to attack you and block, and then you have enough sacrifice synergies, it's eventually going to die. It's just much, much, it has much less of you while providing basically the same amount of value. Yeah. The, the play pattern is like it just plays out well. It's like I'm not convinced it's like the new red preordain but like it might be closer to that than we had realized at least that i had realized in terms of the deck construction as a whole we're calling it sacrifice there's three obnixilis four goblin bombardment and that's about it in terms of actual sacrifice cards obviously a mayhem devil is there to capitalize on cracking fetches or when you get the bombardment down you know you can just machine gun down the board are you surprised to not see deadly dispute here Deadly Dispute has not shown that it's good enough to be played in Modern. I think it just involves like playing to the board. It's not a good reactive spell. It's a much more proactive spell. So I think like decks that actually want to be actively sacrificing should not be playing Deadly Dispute. They should be playing the one black one if you're trying to like sacrifice Kroxa or something in response to removal. And the, the mana ramp doesn't matter. There's no expensive cards here. So yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Deadly Dispute ever be good in Modern. I'm not saying it can't be. It's just... Like, Modern is just so blazingly fast, like a two-mana instant that is really only good if they've already cast Removal Spell. Well, Removal Spells are free in uh, in Modern, so it's, it's actually a huge tempo loss. 
Yeah, you're kind of churning cardboard with it. And you can come out ahead profitably, but it takes time to churn that cardboard. And like this deck, for example, doesn't really feature any artifacts to sacrifice. Uh, you're, you're much happier sacrificing a synthesizer than creatures typically. And the Pioneer decks can play a slower game and therefore leverage these artifact sources in a way that the modern decks just, you, you can't, like, I don't think this deck, like, you, you can play Cat Oven in this deck, for example. It slows it down too much. Two other Obnixilis 5-0s that I just want to point out. One is an Affinity deck. Affinity here in primarily is it colors with a light splash for two Obnixilis. But other than that, it's Thought Monitors, Thought Cast, Expressive Iteration, surprisingly, and then a lot of Affinity creatures. Sojourner's Companion, Mirror Enforcer, Frogmites, Memnites, Ornithopters, four Cranial Platings, no Nettlesis. I'm wondering if, if this player, A-O-A-O-A-O-A, uh, is hoping to actually equip cranial plating and like get a casualty 10 or something off Obnixilis? Or is, is that, was that just like the dream and they probably just won otherwise with normal affinity stuff? No, that's got to be the dream. And if there's one deck that can draw seven cards and immediately just deploy all of them, it's an affinity list. Yeah, I think people wanting to do the like seven power thing in general, just imagine like, oh, I draw these seven cards. It's like, well, you're playing all these whatever, three mana, seven power creatures. So it's going to be hard to turn that into advantage. But exactly like Damon says, there's lots of times you can get your opponent to seven, like you cranial plating up a flyer, you're, you're right, your thought monitor, you hit them to six. If you have a mixus, you just kill them right then. And in other times when you don't have it, right, you can crew up your Memnite, but they've got all these blockers, whatever, because they're on elves for some reason. Then you can just Obnixilis, draw, and then just replace your entire board. So this is the only, one of the few decks that can kind of do both. The seven damage out of nowhere is is going to be lethal. I mean, we, we've all come close to dying against these decks, especially with Shadow Spear. And then a bunch of other times, it's just going to draw you seven cards, but seven cards you can turn into material. Five of those cards will be in play by by your next turn. You draw seven, and then Mirror Enforcer, Sidra's Companion, Frogmite, Soul Guide Lantern, Urza Saga. Omnath, 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 or Ornithopter, Ornithopter. <laughs> three Ornithopters. Yeah. Or just four Ornithopter, three Memnite, you know. It, yeah. it can go either way. You are playing these <laughs> cheapo cards. Well, you have a cranial plating in play, so that's not even that bad. True, true. I have to kill each ornithopter. All right, so affinity makes sense. What about this Domain Zoo 5-0 result from King Hexar? Domain Zoo, so we're talking about Territorial Kavu, Scion of Draco, Tribal Flames, Tarmogoyfs, Ragavans, Bonecrusher Giants, and Miscellaneous Spells. Four copies of Obnixilis the Adversary. <laughs> Arlen the Pax Hope is just an amazing card to see in this deck. So here, if you're going to casualty for Obnixilis, you are sacrificing a good creature. I'm a little surprised that this worked. Yeah. The one thing you can say about Zoo is that um, it's like Odd Mixus has all these different modes, and different modes are accentuated by certain decks. And this one seems to be accentuated by the, the plus the two damage, mm. where you're playing these Tribal Flames, deal five. You're playing these early creatures that are just meant to turn sideways. Yeah, I agree with Damon. I mean, the, the plus two doesn't do anything unless you're putting their life under, you know, some stress. So the sort of Mayhem Devil all of a sudden can, you know, do that those last six, seven damage out of nowhere. So then them taking the damage earlier in the game might end the game. This at least gives you the sort of Tribal Flames, Ragavan, you know, into ter Territorial Kabu kind of draws. And then all of a sudden, Obnixilis, you know, you've got all your blockers down. Ragavan can't get anymore, get in anymore. Obnixilis sacks Ragavan. Now you're just putting a different kind of pressure on your opponent, right? Wrath of God isn't great against Obnixilis, which is you put you bring in a lot of creature removal against decks like this. Obnixilis attacks on a totally different angle. And just again, like every time you're playing Ragavan, you should at least consider playing some number of Obnixilis if you're an aggressive deck. Because that opening is just really, really hard to beat. Yeah. And, and funny enough, Tarmogoyf is like typically an excellent blocker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. True. This deck has a bunch of cards I don't really think of as like modern power level. Like Bone Crusher Giant doesn't see a lot of play in decks that aren't trying to spin into cards. And I don't think of Arlen Pax Hope as being standard playable, even much less modern playable. So the Arlen takes me by surprise for sure. But I guess you have the four Ragavans to generate mana. Next card making a little bit of an impact is Tainted Indulgence. Blue Black Instant. Draw two cards, then discard a card. Unless there are five or more mana values among cards in your graveyard. In that case, you just draw two cards at instant speed. So draw two, discard one at instant speed. That's selection, that's a discard outlet, and potentially card advantage, depending on what you're using the graveyard for. And later in the game, it's just straight card advantage. We're seeing this in Reanimator. You know, obviously, in modern, the Reanimator package is very well defined. 
There's a Grixis version and Esper version, both of those notched 5-0s with Tainted Indulgence. And we even saw one control deck go 3-1 in a prelim, actually it was Wafo Tapo's control deck, where he just put in two copies of Tainted Indulgence alongside his typical reactive suite, Archmaze's Charm. There's a Void Rend in here, that's the new one that destroys any non-land permanent and can't be countered. I mean, certainly Wafotapo is uh, out there grinding every single challenge, modern and legacy, on blue-white. And so the true limit test here is, uh, does he start grinding every challenge on Esper? Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of results yet in just like straight control with Tainted Indulgence. But it is one of the possible homes. Yeah, it used to be that white was kind of missing some tools in control decks. And that, that those gaps got filled super well by... Prismatic Ending, Solitude, Wandering Emperor. I was curious if like a reanimator was going to abandon Faithful Mending, because I'm not like a huge fan of Faithful Mending and Reanimator. Um, the Esper deck, the Esper Reanimator, decided to play four copies of Mending and four copies of Tainted Indulgence because of all those juicy white cards that Damon just mentioned. Your Teferis, your March of Otherworldly Lights, your Prismatic Endings. Uh, the Grixis deck... A little bit different profile is actually mostly Rakdos just splashing into blue only for Tainted Indulgence, but otherwise is using the kind of Grief, Fury, Season Pyromancer. Scam package, Dan, that's what it's called. Is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your opponent shows up to FNM ready to play some, you know, Knight's Fair mid-range, and all of a sudden you go turn one, you know, Grief into uh, Malakia Rebirth. <laughs> Rip your hand apart. At least that's what I've heard the name came from. I could be wrong. Yeah, so in both cases, it seems like the card that got cut from the package was actually Unmarked Grave. Yeah, I mean, that really surprises me, especially when you're playing Unburial Rites. I will say that I think Tainted Indulgence is probably best in Reanimator because it gives you those extra um, mana slots. So, like, if Archon of Cruelty, uh, Unburial Rites, if you're playing some of the Evoke Elementals, that allows your curve to have stuff at, you know, obviously lands, one mana spells, two mana spells, but then you get the three, four, five, you know, in Unburial Rites and Archon of Cruelty. In the late game, Tainted Indulgence just turns into a card advantage engine, right? It's, once I have one Archon of Cruelty in the graveyard, I don't really need to discard for the rest of the game. And, and just being able to, like, two mana instant draw two cards while you leave up Counterspell is just really good. Yeah, well, in terms of Reanimator... Uh, Unmarked Grave is certainly like a good card in game one, but it's so bad against Rest in Peace. Uh, this Grixis deck, they can play Rest in Peace and like they better have something to back it up because otherwise like you'll just win with your red-black dudes. So in that sense, I really like the Tainted Indulgence in the sense of both enabler of the reanimator strategy uh, while also giving you just like grinding ability. I don't love it in control though. I feel like Archmage's Charm already got you like 90% of what this does. The ability to hold up counter spell while also holding up a, a valuable spell if they don't play anything. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you, Damon. I, I'm not a big believer in this like long term as just a straight up like quote unquote value card in modern. I don't know. What do you think, Dan? Uh, I'm torn. I mean, I, I think we should explore the card more. Whether we're going to find additional homes or whether it's just going to be these two homes in modern, reanimator or generic card advantage. I'm not sure yet, but I'm curious to learn more. Do you see any like new archetypes that could try it besides those two? Well, there's actually an interesting Pioneer deck that I noticed. We'll get to that once we shift over to Pioneer. Kind of the Grease Fang reanimator, where, again, I guess I just, that is still just like a reanimator deck. But, you know, these are decks that just need like a little more efficiency in their tools. And Tainted Indulgence seems to be a little more efficient. So gives me some hope. All right, last card I want to highlight for Modern is Vivian on the Hunt. This is maybe one of the big winners from the opening weekend. Had three strong performances in three very different shells. We got to start with this Rakdos shell from Matt Camo, who is Bomat Courier in our Discord. Fantastic grinder. He's been putting up awesome results, and he brewed up a sweet, sweet Rakdos-Vivian combo deck took it into a prelim and immediately rattled off a 4-0. So what is the Vivian combo? <laughs> Why don't you tell us? <laughs> so I think I can get us through it. Uh, you have a plane belt accomplice in play that lets you cheat plane, sneak attack planeswalkers into play. You sneak in a Vivian of the hunt, Vivian on the hunt. You plus two, you sack your accomplice, you get Felidar Guardian. Felidar Guardian comes in, flickers Vivian. Now you can use her again. Plus two, sack Felidar Guardian, get... Karmic Guide. Karmic Guide brings back Felder Guardian. Felder Guardian targets Vivian. Now you can use her again. Then you sack Felidar Guardian 
to get Kiki-Jiki. Kiki-Jiki can then tap to copy Karmic Guide to get back Felidar Guardian. And now you've established the Felidar Guardian Kiki-Jiki shenanigans. Exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> so Vivian on the hunt for Green Green and her first plus ability, the plus two, is a birthing pod style effect. So you end up winning with a, with a pod chain, Felidar Guardian being the key card to enable all that. Worth pointing out, as uh, Mordekaiser did uh, when he and I were talking about some of his builds, it doesn't target with that plus ability, which I never realized. So if you do it with two three-mana creatures in play, let's say you don't have a plane bound compass, it's just turn six, and you have a Magus of the Moon and a Seasoned Pyromancer in play, you cannot stop this with, you know, like, a killing the three-drop. And again, you get your Felidar Guardian, it blinks Vivian, you can then activate it again. If they kill Felidar Guardian in response, you just sack your other three drop, get your second Felidar Guardian. And the same thing if you had two Karmic Guides, this per, uh, some people are only playing one. It's just crazy. Like, it's, it's actually quite resilient to removal, uh, certain kinds of removal, because uh, it, it, as long as you have a couple extra bodies, because that ability doesn't target, which, which was just really interesting to me. So let's see how Bomat Courier built out the deck. So you, you have four Vivians. Your birthing pod chain is two Felidar Guardians, two Karma Guides, two Kiki Jikis. Uh, again, the, the second Karma Guide, the second Kiki Jiki, exactly as David said, are optional. So it's almost like a green and white chain, but Matt looked at this and he was like, you know what, screw that. I'm going to splash the green and white chain into a straight red-black deck. <laughs> so four Ragavans, four Season Pyromancer, four Planebound Accomplice, the sneak attack creature for Planeswalkers, four Fury, four Grief, four Thoughtseize, and four Profane Tutor, a card that we don't see that often, but it's got really interesting skills. I mean, if you can slow the game down just a little bit to make the suspend to not so punishing, and if you can just win out of nowhere, you know, Profane Tutor comes off suspend on turn four, that's the same turn you have enough mana to cast Planebound Accomplice and drop in a Vivian and win immediately. Yeah, I had not thought of Profane Tutor, but I love that technology. You suspend Profane Tutor, it comes off on four, so that gives you a chance to play Season Pyromancer on turn three, and then play Mount Accomplice on turn four. So you actually play Vivian with protection from removal. Yeah, it just it, the curve seems perfect here. And like, why bother casting Vivian? Just cheat into play, come on. Yeah, and because Modern is a turn four format, this deck will never get banned from you. <laughs> you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. The other crucial thing to know about the Vivian combo is that it does not specifically require Planebound Accomplice. Any three drop can start the chain. Planebound Accomplice just helps you get there. In theory, if you felt like Planebound Accomplice is a weak card and you just want to play strong cards only, well, Vivian is actually pretty strong when she's in play. So what if you just built like a ramp deck that happened to have the Vivian combo chain and other three drops? This is the approach taken by David Helfenstein, who is Mr. Rabe, another fantastic brewer, friend of the show. And he took his build to a 4-1 result. It's Arbor Elf Utopia Sprawl into Magus of the Moon, so it's kind of like the, the red-green ramp slash Ponza package. Season Pyromancer, Lightning Bolt, Red and Six. No surprises yet. But then instead of going for Blood Moons, or, well, instead of going for Pillages and Bloodbraid Elves, we could say, Mr. Rabe is playing the Vivian combo chain. So four Vivian on the hunt, which he's, he's not playing any plane on a compass. He's just going to hardcast these. Two Felidars, one Karma Guide, one Kiki-Jiki, three Fury, two Chandra Torch of Defiance, two Bonecrusher Giant. Yeah, Chandra also, you know, the, the classic ramp spell slash removal spell uh, slash card advantage card kind of can fill any role that you needed to in this deck. Yeah. These decks are always interesting because when you play Vivian in the fair sense, you always have to ask the question, like, is this card substantially better than Inferno Titan? Because Inferno Titan used to be the card that these decks play in that slot, and those days are long past. Yeah, and this, in to that point, also makes other slots in your deck worse, right? Like, you would hopefully not be playing Karmic Guide at all in this type of shell if you weren't playing Vivian on the Hunt. Right, right. So you've kind of, like, your combo equity you get from playing the card in your deck, and then, like, the non-combo equity. Yeah, it's a super interesting idea. I mean, I guess my thought process is everybody is ready to kill Ragavan, and the spells that kill Ragavan also kill Arbor Elf. Um, so do you have expectation for Arbor Elf living? I guess, maybe, but it, that seems a little fragile to me. I just assumed that Ragavan was in this list, but no, I see it is not. The last place you might put the Vivian chain is just a straight up, you know, four color Yorian with creature toolbox package. And this is the approach taken by Musasabi uh, to a 5-0 league result. It's got Yorian, it's got all the usual suspects, various value creatures, including Imperial Recruiters. Imperial Recruiter is able to find the Plane Bond Accomplice because it's a 1-3. 
So he's got two plain bond accomplice here and three Vivian on the hunt, but otherwise, you know, we can't really analyze these decks. They're just a pile of creatures with a big chain. I will say the one thing that's always attractive about these, and you know, we did this the first week Yorian came out, right? We were playing like a bunch of value cards and then there'd be like one Kiki-Jiki and one Restoration Angel or something. You don't draw your bad cards as often because you're playing a bunch of, if, if you're allowing me to call these good cards, right? Like Four Ice Fang Quaddle, you know, Omnath you get to play instead. You get to play Teferi, you get to play Ren and Six. And then hopefully your Eldritch Evolutions and your Imperial Recruiters, they just find the like very mediocre cards the when you actually need yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. All right, so those are the main cards that I want to talk about for Modern. I did make a note here of like a few other cards from Nukapenna popping up. Uh, the biggest ones seem to be an offer you can't refuse being picked up in some combo decks like Belcher and Twiddlestorm. An offer you can't refuse is a single blue instant, counters a non-creature spell, but gives the controller of that spell two treasure tokens. And the reason combo decks can use this especially is because they're either combo killing you, so they don't care so much about the treasures they gave you, or they're actually countering their own spell to like do some degenerate stuff with a burst of mana. And that is true for both Belcher and Twiddlestorm, and even Ad Nauseum, a player beat me today by making themselves an offer that they couldn't refuse, which they then used to... Passes Oracle me out. So, yeah, I was a little skeptical of that card, but it, it seems to be doing the work that the combo players hoped it could do. If you don't want to wake up with a horse's head in your bed, <laughs> you just gotta give the Don what he's asking for. <laughs> yeah. Another card that we'll have to see how it performs in modern, but if you're watching uh, Twitch today, I'll just preface it with saying that the astute MTG finance investor could have picked this card up for under a dollar as of April 30th, both uh, physically and digitally, and is now sitting at around 9 to 12 ticks. $9 to 12 ticks. That card is the Ledger Shredder. Uh, Spike was playing it, loved it, Demonic Tutors was playing it, seemed to be happy with it. Uh, we haven't seen it perform in these results in Modern yet, but there's a chance that uh, this card is the real deal. It actually got a good result in Legacy, and I'm on a Blue Delver list, which I think did well in a challenge, if I remember yeah. right. And that's maybe the perfect place to pivot over to Pioneer and check in on what's happening in that format, because to my eyes, Ledger Shredder is the most promising card to come out of the Pioneer results. I had noted four different decks playing two to four copies of Ledger Shredder. So let's just have a look at uh, how they're putting it to use. So for starters, there's just straight up Is It Phoenix? Sneaky Misato, who's a streamer, Kane Reinhardt, plays a lot of Is It Phoenix, just decided to play four Arclight Phoenix, four Ledger Shredders, and a bunch of spells, and got 3-1 result in a prelim. What do you make of this? I mean, it makes sense, but there's other creatures you could play instead, you know, Thing in the Ice. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, all these decks have one thing in common, or many things in common. They are playing eight one-mana blue cantrips. They are playing six to eight one red mana shock variants. They are playing four expressive iteration. They are playing three to four uh, delve spells. As long as you do that, you can do a lot of other stuff and you'll be okay. You can play the control shell with Narset and very few creatures. You can play Thing in the Ice and uh, Phoenix. You can play Phoenix and no Thing in the Ice. You can play Thing in the Ice and no Phoenix. You can play Ledger Shredder with the two mana counter spell that, that makes them pay four if you have a flying creature. You can play Sprite Dragon with the two blue uh, instant that makes them, you know, pay one if you don't have a dragon and just a hard counter with a dragon. So, like, those are all your options. Uh, which one is better or not is just all dependent on what you play. In general, I feel like Thing in the Ice is going to be better than Ledger Shredder more often because Thing in the Ice is really good against Winota. Yeah, it depends on the context. I mean, it, it's funny. David and I were playing these blue, red, X, and Pioneer way back trying to make Goblin Dark Dwellers work with uh, See the Truth. Uh, holding up neutralize or whatever, and we just <laughs> we didn't really get anywhere, uh, but we tried. And today's is it Mage and Pioneer, or in really any format, is now powered by four expressive iteration, and that card makes these decks so strong that yeah, is it better to play Ledger Shredder or Thing in the Ice, Crackling Drake, Phoenix? You know, like there's all these choices. Play none of them, play Control and play Niv Mizzet. You know, like kind of the world is the is it Mage's oyster right now, uh, especially in Pioneer. And in, in the Phoenix X, like, yeah, like, a lot of the, their winning lines involve Temporal Trespass. Uh, your opponent lines up a huge board with Winota or with Mono Green Devotion, and all of a sudden, you have three Phoenixes in the air, you Galvanic Iteration, a Temporal Trespass, and you win the game out of nowhere. And does Ledger Shredder play a role in those situations? Like, yeah, it probably helps there. It probably helps a lot of cases. Uh, it is certainly weak to Fatal Push, but so is Thing in the Ice. 
Yeah, I like those cards the best of all the two mana options because they dodge all the shock effects in the mirror match. Ledger Shredder really only dodges the three mana effects if you cast it on turn three, but you can do that easy enough and you'll always have a one mana spell. And uh, it also triggers on your opponents. Like in the mirror, if you can get it to survive that first encounter, then every time your opponent expresses iterations and casts you know, opt, you're getting another plus one plus one counter. So... Maybe it's like good in the mirror, but worse against Winota. And so it's like you want your opponents to play the thing in the ices to chase out the Winota opponents. And when you play them in the top eight, you get them with your shredder. Like that's that's pretty sweet. So this was not immediately obvious on a cursory reading of the card. But yeah, it checks whenever any player casts two spells in the turn, you get to do the connive. So if your opponent has a ledger shredder in play, are you willing to cast two spells into it? Or are you can actually play around that, treat it like an Archon of Amiria? Well, if your first spell is a Narset, Parter fails, then you'll absolutely cast a second spell into it. Yeah, this actually gets hosed by Narset so hard. Kniva is not a May. So, yeah, <laughs> so there's a third variation. So, we play our Ledger Shredder to beat the people playing Thing in the Ice, but then the control people get to play Narset plus spells, just discard a card, <laughs> and then kill your Ledger Shredder. Yeah, although, of course, in Pioneer, it's not always so easy to line up the removal spells uh, early on against the Ledger Shredder out of your blue-white deck. And so maybe maybe they discard a card, but then they just kill your, you know, use it to kill your um, Narset. What about blue-black Narset, Damon? And we just tech out all of the red-blue players. It just doesn't even seem fair. We just... Narset plus Fatal Push, your Ledger Shredder, discard a card, lose your Shredder. <laughs> yeah, then they untap and play Expressive Iteration, and they still win the game. But now we've tainted Indulgence. Maybe is that, is that <laughs> the <laughs> way Demir catches up? Well, we, we can play Grixis. We can play Expressive Iteration in our Narset. That's true. That's true. All right, so is it makes sense? And indeed, we have a 5-0 result with is it Control with two Ledger Shredders, four Crackling Drakes, and a Niv-Mizzet Perun. We have is it Tempo getting a 5-0 with Sprite Dragons and Ledger Shredders, and we have the Phoenix that I mentioned. A slightly different take is Esper Greasefang featuring four Ledger Shredders and four Tainted Indulgence. This list took 11th place in the Sunday Pioneer Challenge from Pastor of Muppets. Four Greasefang, four Ledger Shredder. <laughs> Shoutouts to Metallica, man. Come on. Is that Metallica? I'm not familiar with that. Master of Puppets, 1985. But this is a funnier way okay. <laughs> to reference that seminal record. Four Parhelion to four Greasefang. So that that's all makes sense. Four Consider, four Opt. These are the, the requirements for playing Ledger Shredder, as David just articulated nicely. Four Thought Seize, three Fatal Push, two Charter Course, four Tainted Indulgence, one Eliminate, one Extinction Event, one Murderous Cut, and then you need to have a Delve spell to take advantage of all these little cantrips. And here, Pastor of Muppets is playing three Dig Through Time. Murderous Cut also a Delve spell, just a FYI. Oh, thank you. So it's actually a fairly cheap list, right? There's there's not a lot of clunk here, right? There's no Faithful Mending, for starters. Yeah, there's no white cards. There's no um, the white-black spell with that flashes back for three that can bring back Grease Fang. So you can't uh, mill yourself into that effect. Can't stay away. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the one thing... I think about this deck is, to Dan's point, I think Ledger Shredder makes this deck better because it forces your opponent to actually spend removal spells on Shredder because you have a combo that can be disrupted by Fatal Push or, you know, Lightning Bolt effects. Two, um, Tainted Indulgence, obviously a very powerful effect that you don't have to play Faithful Mending, although I would probably play some number of Faithful Mending in this list. But man, playing these lists is so frustrating because you break the rule of eight two times. Your Grease Fang doesn't do anything without Parhelion. Your Parhelion doesn't do anything without Grease Fang. And you only have four of each. So what you see is players have great leagues with this, and then they go like 1-2 drop, 0-2 drop, 2-3, oh, my draws are so clunky, 5-0, oh, this deck is amazing. Because there's just sometimes when Parhelions just aren't in the top 30 cards of your deck, and there's sometimes when, you know, there's no Grease Fangs in the top 30 cards of your deck, and because each of those fails the rule of 8, you, you can just have terrible, terrible draws where your deck is doing everything that it's supposed to be doing, and your ledger shuddering, and you're getting up to 4 power, and you're just like, man, this really sucks. <laughs> It's a good point, David. One thing that has been rattling around in my head is, do you take these extra tournaments or not? Because one argument says, you know, like, hey, I'm a good player. I practice a lot or whatever. Like, I want to bring a deck that's, like, stable and 51% against everything or whatever. You just bring Jund. Or, you know, maybe not Jund in today's economy. Red, black, sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, kind of like one of those classic decks where you have a lot of agency and the deck is pretty consistent. Or do you play these decks that are, like, you know, to win a tournament, even with those decks, you still have to run pretty hot. Uh, there's just no doubt that winning a Magic tournament is, is always difficult, always requires luck on your side. 
uh, always requires, you know, generally speaking, good play and good deck selection. But there's decks where, like, yeah, like, I- I'm going to play my standstill deck in Legacy. Like, that deck loves to win the die roll. <laughs> uh, force your first thing, resolve standstill. You know, like, that's amazing. If you're on the draw, it doesn't always work out that well. Uh, if you hit a lot of Urza Saga matchups, it doesn't always work out that well. <laughs> and so, like, do you embrace the variance? Like, wh- does it matter how long the tournament is at a GP versus, like, a, you know, a 1K versus a league? In my experience, if I'm bringing any deck that has four consider, four opt, and and some number of dig through times or treasure crews. I'm just gonna leave happy. Like I derive joy from casting those cards, and I just feel like I'm playing magic. And you just get to do that every game because that's a bunch of your deck. Now you might still lose because exactly as you're saying, you know, if the arc like Phoenix is not in your top thirty, it doesn't matter how many of these effects you had. And it's the same with Grease Fang and Perhelion. But like I, I just like I feel like I'm okay with that just because the process of casting my cantrips is like enough for me soothes the souls it makes you feel like a smart player well i agree with you dan i love i love the xerox style although I, in pioneer i actually find it to be very boring so i don't build those but the blue red deck lets you do all this stuff and then not just die to like one card like this deck can't ever beat rest in peace which shuts down all your card advantage and your combo win and mm-hmm. everything like all you have is ledger shredder <laughs> just like all right this card is great but is it great enough to like win by itself at the same time when you get to go turn three Grease Fang, whether it's in the Absand version or the Mardu version or this version or a more Esper version with uh, with Faithful Mending, that is probably the best turn three you can have in the entire format. If you cast Grease Fang, especially as more fewer and fewer decks don't have removal, right? Mono Green cannot interact with this uh, at all on the stack. Neither can Winota. When you do that, it it just feels awesome, right? It's just like the nut Winota draw every time if you do this. And you get to... You're basically like playing Winota here, only <laughs> you also get to play sort of like the blue-red list but i mean uh, i just these th- i just find these decks so stressful like the top 20 cards of your deck just determine if you can win or not and you still have to play really tight because there's a bunch of decisions um so yeah i just find myself like ragging my brain and even though you get to cast a lot of spells i don't feel like you get to play a lot of magic yeah well maybe the ledger shredder is the key card to soothe the soul in this deck where even as you're losing to their nut draw and you can't find your parhelion you're busy conniving <laughs> I will say the one thing people forget is that Ledger Shredder only gets a plus one plus one if you discard a creature spell. I've seen so many people lose their Ledger Shredder to four, a four damage effect or whatever, the second shock, because they just like, oh, okay, I want to cast this spell next turn. You should, maybe it is right to do that sometimes, but actually think about like, I can save my Ledger Shredder here at the risk of losing a card next turn, but you keep in play a very powerful, you know, three, five flyer or whatever, so... It doesn't automatically get plus one, plus one. People are just always playing as if it does, and they're just stunned it dies. It's like, well, you pitch your Rafine's Tower to it. Uh, connive is not an automatic uh, token. Yeah. Quick correction, it's discard a non-land to get the counter, not non-creature. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a weird card. I, I think, honestly, the card is, like, the best weak card we've seen in a while. Like, it clearly is not a great card. Like, it just dies to Fatal Push. It dies to Prismatic Ending. It dies to Bolt to start with. But somehow, like, it has just the right amount of stuff gluing it together to perhaps be a strong card. It lives through Shock, which is actually huge, to at least make it a consideration. So you can't play, like, Jace. I mean, you can, but Jace is always going to be a little weaker than this, even if the ultimate payoff for Jace is maybe a little higher. Uh, same with Suspicious Stowaway, dies to everything. Uh, again, the, the nut draw where you just get the attack for two on your turn three and draw a card is a little higher than, like, Ledger Shredder's best. But Ledger Shredder is going to get to do its thing most times, and you can always play it on turn three and connive. Yeah, the connive trigger happens even if they kill the ledger shredder. And looting is sometimes better than drawing, as Dennis pointed out. But yeah, this kind of deck is the one that would drive me crazy. I'm not saying people shouldn't play it or whatever, but this is like the the baseball hitter that just swings at sliders. And like every once in a while, the pitcher throws a wrong kind of slider. It just spins up there and you hit a home run. And you do it just enough that you never learn to lay off sliders. Uh, so I think this this feeds you your like pellet just enough. Like, oh man, let's run it again. It's like, ah, oh, I just got unlucky. You know, when it really counted, I just, there were no parhelions. It's like, that's what this deck does. Just... Two no rule of eights, just, I, I can't do it. That's that's my, That'd be my feedback. Although this deck looks really sweet. Like Dan says, you'll do a lot of things. You'll move a lot of cardboard from one zone to another. David, I think the analogy would work better if you actually use it in the other direction with this audience, where we go to a baseball game together, and you're like, oh man, that pitcher is playing like the Esper Grease Fang deck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, oh yeah, okay, I see what you mean. <laughs> the Parhelion was right in the strike zone, and he crushed it over Well, I feel a Ledger Shredder week in our, in our future. I do too, but I will not be, I will not, I swear to God, I will not be doing anything that has no two, two different no rule of eights. I will not be doing that. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, so that's Ledger Shredder and Pioneer. Other cards making an impact on the format. 
I made a note of two cards, Giada Font of Hope and Topiary Stomper, one of which we actually didn't even talk about in our preview episodes. Let's start with Giada. Tell me about the Angels deck, David. Do you feel like this is a deck that's actually getting a meaningful upgrade here from Giada? Well, it's getting a meaningful upgrade. I think the deck was unplayable. Um, I think Giada, as we talked about, is a tribal card, which people love, including me. And it's an angel, which people love, including me. And it's like a super powered version. Like, it's just an insane card, right? Like, if you just hit a bunch of angels with your collected company, they all get an additional plus one, plus one. For each angel you already control, it's just an insane card. There aren't any interesting four mana angels uh, to play on turn four. So the mana this gives you isn't always useful. Um, but you can often spend four mana on turn three. So, I mean, people were talking about only playing two or three of these. It's like, this is by far the best card in the deck. And so it can't be that bad. It does a lot of the things that we talk about me hating in this format, which is it's a two mana two two that dies to every shock effect. Uh, but you know, that's that's the price you have to pay. Let's just take a look at the list from Super Cow one two six five three that took eighth place in the Saturday challenge. Four Speaker of the Heavens, four Bishop of Wings, four Giada Font of Hope, four Resplendent Angel, four Righteous Valkyrie, four Skyclave Apparition, two Brutal Cathar, four Collected Company, four Youthful Valkyrie, three Book of Exalted Deeds, 24 lands, including the Mutavolts you would expect to see for both the Book of Exalted Deeds combo and for, you know, Giada counting how many angels you have in play. Are you surprised that the curve is so low? I mean, I didn't think they would still be playing Youthful, Val- Youthful Valkyrie now that you have Giada, but they're playing four of each. Yeah, Youthful Valkyrie living through shock and being a cheap angel is really big. Because you have Giada, the ability to turn to Giada, let's say it lives. We're living in that world, right? We've been living a clean life and donating to the Ukrainian cause, so we get the kind of luck we deserve. It lets you go like Bishop of Wings, Youthful Valkyrie. Um, so you just get to use your mana much more efficiently, uh, much more often. The problem with this deck is it was all three drops with no accelerators, right? Sometimes they were playing mana elves. That makes your mana really bad because you are playing Book of Exalted Deeds. That needs white, white, white. You have a bunch of double white cards, including Bishop of Wings that wants white, white. So the deck was having to play mana elves, even though they were really tough on the mana. Now you can abandon the elf because Giada is a, you know, homeless man, Sylvan Caryatid, and... It, it, it makes your draws a lot more efficient. And then your nut draw actually gets insane, right? Where you go like Youthful Valkyrie, Youthful Valkyrie. The second Valkyrie triggers all these. I mean, you just, and all of a sudden you're adding all these crazy plus one, plus one counters. You're, nothing dies to shock after that second, if they don't have one for the second turn Giada. And, and you just start to roll. Yeah, Giada's much happier to see you play a bunch of cheap angels than to resolve like a single Baneslayer angel or, or whatever. This deck it just does, it has so many kind of per ETB things that don't scale that well as the creatures get larger. They, they kind of get the most impact on cheap angels. You know, Bishop of Wings doesn't care how big the angel is. Youthful Valkyrie doesn't care how big the other angel is. Righteous Valkyrie like sort of does, but these angels all come with pretty big toughness to start with. The question is, is the Book of Exalted Deeds worth it? You know, I, I think that's a really interesting question. White Blue is playing Ways to Destroy Lands, and we know that uh, Boseju is is all over the place, right? So you really want to play Book if you feel like it's going to survive, but if there's a lot of Boseju around, then Book of Exalted Deeds is a huge liability. And I noticed that the 5-0 list that you highlighted here, Dan, does not play any Book, but does play for Glasspool Mimic. Um, I like that build better myself. It's also playing for, uh, or excuse me, three Portable Hole. So it's just a little bit more interactive. I, th- I think relying on that combo feels good, of course, when it works, but I, I th- th- that makes me a little more nervous. So I like the 5-0 build better than the one that uh, had a pretty good result in the challenge. Yeah. Two comments. One is Book of Exalted Deeds does actually have text besides Mutavault. Uh, it's not maybe like the best card, but if you're up against a control deck, for example, even though they have like Fields of Runes or Besejus or whatever to stop the Mutavault combo, this does let you build a bigger battlefield without committing as many resources to it. Um, and I'm sure there are some decks in Pioneer that are actually cold to the combo. Yeah, well, they're absolutely, I mean, I've had a full do it many times. <laughs> I've never lost to any Grease Fang deck ever, and I've lost to Book of Exalted Deeds almost every time it's resolved against me. So yeah. I'm just trying to protect myself. Like, I think these blue red decks don't actually have that many answers to it. All right, so that's Angels featuring Giada Font of Hope. The other card I mentioned was Topiary Stomper, and I got to read this one because we skipped it during preview week. It's one green green, four four, plant dinosaur with vigilance. Oh, four four vigilance for three. That's pretty good. 
When it enters a battlefield, search your library for a basic land card, put it on the battlefield tapped, so it even casts a rampant growth. What's the catch? Well, Topiary Stomper can't attack or block unless you control seven or more lands. So somewhat reminiscent of like Wayward Swordtooth, except that this one actually gives you card advantage. And importantly, while it's on the battlefield, it's contributing two pips towards your Nykthos Devotion. Seven lands is not totally out of the question. So the player Timitron managed to take their mono green devotion deck to ninth and tenth place in the Saturday and Sunday challenges, respectively. We're talking about just the basic Elvish Mystic, Lanor Elves, Old Growth Troll, Cavalier of Thorns, Cure Behemoth Beckoner. This is how mono green tends to be built these days. Uh, they rely on Karn with an interesting piece of tech, Pestilent Cauldron, in the sideboard that actually allows you to go infinite in certain scenarios with Nykthos and Kiora and Karn. What do you think about this tech, Dan? So they're basically replacing 4 Oath of Nyssa with 4 Topiary Stomper. Uh, that seems to be the card that's subtracted out every time. I always thought Oath of Nyssa was a super powerful card in this list. I'd be very reticent to cut it. That doesn't mean maybe Topiary Stomper doesn't have a place. I would just maybe try to find something else to replace if it was up to me. But what do you think? I was about to ask you that question. What do you think? <laughs> I, I actively dislike it. I, I love Oath of Nyssa. I think it's such a good card. But... I mean, are they going to get seven lands a lot? I guess it does trigger Kiora. I mean, Storm the Festival often does end up hitting lands. I, I just, it doesn't seem quite worth it to me. Again, if, if we could find something else to subtract out instead of Oath, maybe I'd be a little more enthusiastic, but the list is so tight. All these cards are very powerful. Yeah, the, the lists are tight. I think this card is actually pretty similar to Oath, but arguably better in a lot of ways, where it works with Kiora. Uh, it generates more green devotion. It actually is a two-for-one, whereas Oath is just a one-for-one. Uh, it, of course, may take some time to make it a two-for-one, but it technically is one. And the, the devotion is really, I think, no joke. Not something your opponent wants to like interact with when, when you're building your devotion count. You see some of these lists playing Sylvan Karyatid now in mono green, which is like kind of surprising to me. You know, We used to see Burning Tree Emissary as your really explosive play, but that's not a very good card. It's not necessarily going to be in play when you're trying to count up your devotion pips, whereas Sylvan Karyatid is going to be there for you ramping you towards what ends up being a fairly inevitable late game with Cavalier of Thorns, Storm the Festival, Kiora, and Karn. Yeah, and, and a lot of people are trying different splashes. White, uh, this the Pestilent Cauldron that you mentioned, Dan, has a black casting cost in it. So the, this deck is playing one Overgrown Tomb. If you're playing Karyatid, it does help you fix for those things. You know, the cyborg cards they found are pretty important when you're playing Lotus Fields, for instance. That's a very important deck to consider. I mean, the thing is, Oath finds your Nykthos too, right? And it also avoids... Mana, screw, right? If you're not playing Oath, it's a lot easier to get these decks. They keep one land, two elves, and you just kill both elves. I mean, it, that's a very reasonable opening that can happen now, right? It, whereas if they had an Oath instead of a three drop, that Oath can find another land. Yeah, I just, I'm not an expert in these decks. This card seems suspicious to me. I would be surprised if people are playing for Topiary Stomper over for Oath uh, in, in a couple weeks. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think that maybe like a 2-2 two -two split could wind up being the way to go. Yeah. All right, so those are the three biggest winners so far in terms of like making meaningful changes to known or top archetypes. What else is happening in Pioneer from Nukapena? Well, there's the Triomes, the Triomes near the top of David's list in terms of immediate playability. We haven't seen a lot of decks yet fully embracing the Triomes. I noticed one Lutri deck that was just leading full on into the Grixis, uh, whatever it's called, Grixis Triome, Xander's Lounge. Just call it Grixis Triome, man. I don't know what we're doing here. Yeah, that one. So four of that enabling, you know, a Lutri control deck, a bank control deck with four Sparrow's headquarters, and three copies of Endless Detour, which is the, the Ether Gust for anything. And Claudio put some of the new Triomes into his Niv list. But I don't know. I mean, is it just like Pioneer meta is not receptive to these multicolor decks right now? Or what's going on? Yeah, that's kind of what Mort and I talked about uh, two weeks ago now. this It's just not a Triome deck right the decks that do really well are two colors or one color um they're super fast the mono green list is super fast winota is three colors but is playing zero coming to play tap land um obviously blue red has awesome mana and is super fast lotus field is two colors and i guess three technically because it has a black spell but you know what i mean <laughs> all the spells except for the cards that kill you are blue and green there's just there's not a lot of time to play the tap land and the, the catch-up mechanisms aren't quite powerful enough right now to catch all the various things, right? If you just had to beat Mono Green and Winota, that would be one thing, but you also have to have game against 
Control, you have to have a game against uh, Lotus Field, you have to have a game against Blue Red Phoenix. So you're asking a lot for all these sort of mid-range decks that are trying to like grow Spiral turn two or, or Silver Carry added turn two. And then your, your plays have to be so impactful to make up for the fact that you didn't play like Llanowar Elf turn one. Yeah, and in, in Modern, you get to basically choose as the pilot, do you want to be playing one copy of a Trium or nine copies of Trium every given game? Whereas in Pioneer, if you're playing four, you're playing four. There's no way around it. Any thoughts on Obnixilis the Adversary and Pioneer? I noted four results with it, one in Rakdos Sacrifice, one in Jun Sacrifice, one in Rakdos Midrange, and one in Rakdos Aggro. And both of those Rakdos Aggro Midrange decks were actually pairing it with Tenacious Underdog, which I thought was somewhat surprising. Again, there's maybe a card availability issue where Obnixilis was just not available for many days, the rental service was totally sold out, and it's just so expensive. But I mean, it makes sense at a conceptual level that this would be an upgrade for the sacrifice strategies i think yeah i think you you did make some decisions about how you're going to build them but yeah the card seems super powerful and just the average card quality going up in decks like that can only help them so i i think we will see a lot more of this card as like you say dan you can rent it instead of not being able to rent it because i have not been able to run a single list with them yet and uh you know hopefully the price will go down a little bit if it's It's like the old Yogi Berra uh, saying, right, that that restaurant's so popular now nobody goes there anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's weird because in Pioneer, on, on the one hand, you can play creatures like Voldaire and Epicure and Blood Tithe Harvester that would get you kind of laughed out of the room at a modern uh, event. And these cards are great to sacrifice to Obnixilis. And so you're playing like a lot more natural fodder, but also Pioneer just has so many more decks that involve turning things sideways that your Obnixilis surely like just die faster. But yeah, we'll have to see in the coming weeks, right? As the card gets more available, if we don't see it in more lists, that means it maybe just isn't quite good enough for the reasons that uh, uh, Damon outlined. And if we start to see it a lot, then maybe the price goes up and then we see it less again all of a sudden. All right, so those are the main cards to watch uh, that I noted. There are a few other cards that popped up in the opening weekend. You know, Naya and Oda players tried a bunch of different cards one off in their lists and, you know, some of them got published, but none struck me as particularly convincing upgrades to Winota. Um, we saw a little bit of Unlicensed Hearse showing up on different sideboards, a little bit of Strangle showing up as a removal spell. This is the sorcery for a single red, three damage to a creature or planeswalker. Illuminator Virtuoso, a creature that you know has double strike, got picked up by Boros Feather. And a single player managed to 5-0 with Lord Xander in their Sorin Vampires deck. But yeah, I mean, between all of these, like none of these struck me as things that are likely to stick around. Would you agree with that, David? Yeah, I, you know, Lord Xander's an interesting card. I, I think Soren is the most powerful three-mana Planeswalker in the format. So there's always something there. Um, you know, again, we're rule of fouring our way to uh, decks that can have explosive draws and then can be very mediocre. So how do you, you know, deal with your Lord Xander when you draw... <laughs> Don't draw your Soren, right? I mean, that that's a bad card to have in your hand. These vampire decks always have two Sorens. I've never seen them have less. Yeah, so maybe you just have to be the master of the London Mulligan. I think there's a little bit of legs. Anytime you're playing, you know, inherently you're just playing a super powerful card in Soren. So you're saying, all right, my seven mana card is awesome when I draw the card I want to draw the most of. That's not a bad place to be. Yeah, I mean, it is such a big upgrade. It used to be that they, they play their Soren and they put Champion of Dusk in and, and maybe they have a board, maybe they just draw one card and it's still strong. But Lord Xander, like that seems kind of game winning for the most part. Yeah, maybe we need to do like a Ledger Shredder Soren list where it's just a little <laughs> bit more like we, we just have a bunch of selection, right? We're going to play our ops and, and consider. So we hit Soren more and then Ledger oh, yeah. Shredder discards our Lord so Xander. So it fits right into the 8-8, half-half, 4-4 pattern. Perfect. <laughs> Rule of two. <laughs> yes. All right. So any final thoughts on opening weekend of New Capenna in Modern and Pioneer? You like what you're seeing so far? Feeling optimistic for the set? Any predictions for next week? Yeah, I think that the set is a great addition. It doesn't cause too much churn. It's like, it's like a really well-balanced set. Uh, I like to see this amount of change. Looking forward to figuring out what the parks and rivers and valleys of New Capenna look like. Yeah, I, I think this set is another winner from Watsy. Um, I think that the standard looks really cool. I think it has not been particularly disruptive to Modern or Pioneer, but it has definitely led to some uh, worthwhile cards to experiment in existing shells. And that's kind of all you can ask at this point. I feel like this set is lighter on build-arounds and has like more role players. 
at least for our constructed one-on-one formats. Like, I think we're going to run out of cards to, like, really go deep on in a few weeks. But maybe that's fine. I mean, maybe that's what should happen in a standard release. And we'll see. It's always nice to be get, get down into the down into the weeds and, like, you know, try to make, break Broker's Ascendancy or River Tears Ascendancy in week seven of the format or whatever it is. <laughs> well, we'll be on the Toulouse week before you know it. And <laughs> Yes, exactly. A lot to look forward to in Nuka Penna, but we will have to call it here for today speaking of things to look forward to in our monday episode we are going to be brewing with actually one of the new lands the bant triome whose name i am refusing to learn so bant triome coming up on monday and we'll tell you also a little bit about our testing so far with luxior jada's gift and invoke calamity all right see you gentlemen then see ya that's a wrap on this edition of the faithless brewing podcast Tune in on Monday for Bant Week featuring Spara's headquarters and testing results with Luxior Giada's Gift. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. If you like what we do, you can join our community at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.